Amen. Amen. I want to uh, do things just a little bit differently than what I normally do uh, in our time together in church. I'm not going to give you a proper sermon as such, and I always want to kind of warn you when that is the case. I don't want you to mistake what we're going to do tonight for any actual preaching, all right? Uh, But what I want to do is take this opportunity uh, when I'm before you on Sunday evening to answer one of the most common questions I've I've received as your pastor. I've been asked this question a lot the past few months. In fact, somebody literally asked me today at the door on the way out uh, this question, and that is, what Bible translation do you preach from? And so uh, I want to take time to answer that and explain my motivation and and thinking as your pastor in explaining why I preach from the English Standard Version. First of all tonight, I want you to know that is a good question because it touches on the question that really is at the heart of everything we do. We are here tonight to make much of Jesus. We are here tonight to glorify God. We are here tonight to know Him and to make Him known. We are here to proclaim to the world, here's who Jesus is, and here's what He expects of you. But who is He? How do we know who He is? What does Jesus demand of the world, and how do we know that? Answering those questions correctly requires us to open up the Bible. And that requires us to have confidence and faith that what we are reading is the Word of God. And so tonight I want to help you maybe understand why I preach from the version that I do, why I believe you can trust it, why I would recommend it to you, but certainly wouldn't force you uh, to use it. Tonight if we lose our confidence in the Word of God, we lose everything. Remember what the devil began? Remember how his lead-in was with Eve in the Garden of Eden? The King James translates it this way, Yea, hath God said. Did God really say? If we lose our confidence in the Word of God, we lose everything. And I want you, as people that I preach the Bible to regularly, I want you to have confidence that when you hear the Word of God opened and preached, not so much my preaching, but when you hear the Word of God opened and preached, you are engaging with the very words of the God who gave you life. You are engaging with the words of the God who has created you and hopefully redeemed you by His grace. And I understand as your pastor that the pulpit sets, uh, kind of sets the tone for the church. It sets a precedent for the church. And I know many of you, after I have become your pastor, um, you've gone out and bought the Bible translation I preach from because sometimes it's a little bit weird coming to church on Sunday morning and you've got, you know, one thing in your hand and you're hearing me reference something else and those differences and I understand all of that. And I understand that when a church that loves the Lord faithfully follows the leaders that God has put there, when those leaders are following the Lord and when everything's working the way that it's supposed to, you kind of rub off on one another. Uh, The relationship between a pastor and a church is a lot like a marriage in some ways. And have you ever known those couples over the years that um, after a while they start to look like one another? (laughs) Ladies, that's true for some of y'all, and I'm really sorry. (laughs) I just... After, after, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, just somehow you start to look like each other. Of, 
uh, some things that I think are important for you to know. But I want to begin this evening by reading the Word of God in Psalm 19. I want us to read this whole psalm together. Psalm chapter number 19. If you do have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the Word of God. Psalm chapter number 19. And we'll read uh, all 14 verses. This is a great, great psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and it comes to them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, they're true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You may be seated tonight. Psalm 19 is an amazing, an amazing psalm where David hits on what is the absolute bedrock of the Christian faith. And that is that our God is a God who has made himself known. And he begins right away in verse number 1 by referring to this kind of general revelation that God has put together into the very fabric of nature itself. That every day the sun rises all over the world at different times, yes, but all over the world. And everybody who will be honest with nature and honest with themselves should look at that sun and they should realize something or somebody put that there. God has put around every person and inside of every person, the Bible says in Romans 2, witnesses to his existence. But it doesn't take long for David to go deeper about that. He goes into a super, the idea of supernatural, special revelation in verse 7, where God has not just left nature to speak for him, God has spoken into creation. He has given his creatures his law. He has given his creatures his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, his rules. God has spoken. And tonight, that is the very bedrock of the Christian faith. You can dig down deep, and at the very bottom, you'll find the truth that our God is a God who has chosen not to keep Himself silent. And that the Christian faith is not uh, man's words about who God is, but it is built upon God's word about Himself. It's an amazing, an amazing thought. He has revealed his will and his character. And David says very, very clearly, for verse 7, for instance, verse 8, that when people encounter the Word of God, the Word of God has an incredible transformative effect in their lives. The Word of God revives the soul. 
The word of God gives, wise to the, gives wisdom to the simple. The word of God makes the heart rejoice. It gives enlightening to the eyes. The word of God changes lives. That's true for all of us that know the Lord Jesus, isn't it? That we interacted at some point with the word of God and it changed us. We were, Peter said, we were born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of the living God. But it's also true day to day with Jesus, isn't it? You think about the impact that the word of God has had on your heart. When you've been discouraged, when you've been defeated, you think about how God has used his word to comfort you, to guide you, to direct you, to convict you in all the different ministries of the word. And we can never lose sight of the fact that the word of God changes lives. Isaiah chapter 55, folks, is still in the Bible. That as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the Lord says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word accomplishes his will. It always has. And it always shall. God spoke and creation came into existence. God spoke and created the nation of Israel from Abraham. God spoke and you were dead in your sins and you came forth in newness of life. God's word does his work. And I just want to tell you that to encourage you as a church because I know sometimes we come in here and we hear the word of God preached and we have a service and we want to see more stuff happen. We want to see more people come to the altar. We want to see God save people. We want to see all these incredible things, and we should, and we must pray for those things and long for them. But folks, God's Word accomplished this morning exactly what He wanted it to accomplish. And somebody may not have come to the altar, but if He's working in their heart, they're not going to get away from Him. His Word will accomplish His work. God's Word, when it's read and understood, brings revival, David says. It gives wisdom. It brings joy to the heart. So much so that David's conclusion is absolutely right. The Word of God should be desired more than gold. More than life itself. Because we have no real life apart from the Word of God. But all of that means that we need access to the Word of God in a format that is both faithful to what God actually said and understandable in language we can actually read. So I want to take the time tonight to explain why I feel like as a pastor and preacher, uh, the English Standard Version best suits who God has made me to be and what He's called me to do. But as kind of a preface to that, let me tell you that it was not always that way for me. I grew up in churches and around pastors uh, that were strictly King James only. That doesn't mean anything to some of y'all. Uh, but for some of you, it does. Some of y'all know what I mean by that. But basically, that means that I grew up hearing that the King James translation of the Bible was the only valid and legitimate translation of scriptures for English-speaking people. And to some degree, I've known people that said, even in places where they don't speak English, if they really want to hear from God, they need to learn English so they can read the King James. I'm serious. Uh, every other Bible translation was considered watered down at best and was considered uh, filled with doctrinal compromise at worst. I've heard everything about Bible translations, that they were the devil's work to confuse people about the Word and were probably the result of some kind of, the result of some kind of Catholic conspiracy about homosexuals and the Masons. I don't know. But I want you to understand the environment I grew up in tonight. Okay, This is important. The environment I grew up in, the people that I grew up around, they believe that somebody like Charles Stanley, they believe he's a liberal compromiser. Because he does not preach from the King James Bible. I'm telling you the truth. 
They will not use Lifeway Sunday School material that our church uses because they produce material in other translations. I know churches that seriously have pulled support from the ministry of the Gideons, those, you know, the hotel Bible guys, because they've started producing their Bibles in other translations. Which means for me, seriously tonight, every, almost every verse of Scripture that I memorized is in the King James. And I know some of y'all giggle every now and then when I'm preaching because that comes out on me, don't it? Even was reading this, Psalm 1914. I memorized that in the King James. And I want to throw those thou's back in there. And sometimes you just can't help it. Uh, The first, uh, every sermon I preached for years, up until about a year and a half, well, two and a half years ago, I guess, was in the King James. In fact, the very first church I pastored, while I was the pastor there, we worked on our bylaws. And we put in our bylaws, under my leadership and under my advice, that the only Bible translation we would use for any public ministry of the Word was the King James Bible. And it's still in their bylaws, as, as far as I know. But that started to change for me when I went to Bible college, which the college that I went to was and is exclusively a King James school. And um, while we were there, they made us you know, write papers, study this issue out to kind of um, confirm our convictions about the King James Bible. And it kind of had the opposite effect on me. Uh, and Bible college was good for me in that respect because it was there. I began to learn that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. It's always good when you start to find out how much you don't know. And what I came to understand is that people reject modern Bible translations. No matter what argument they use, they can only reject modern Bible translations for one of two reasons. First, this is going to be a little bit technical, but first, they may have a problem with the underlying manuscripts in the original languages. Now, I hope you know tonight that there is no original copy of the letter to 1 Corinthians. Like that piece of paper that Paul wrote, that's long, long gone to history. Because it was distributed to a church, they read it, passed it around, used it, and then over time it just wore out. But those believers made copies of that, and believers made copies of those copies, and believers made copies of those copies to produce what are called manuscripts. And just long story, very, very short, the, the, the New Testament is the most historically reliable document from the ancient world. There is almost no doubt from New Testament scholars, even among non-Christians, even among people that don't like what the Bible teaches and reject what the Bible teaches, people like Bart Ehrman, who teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he will tell you that, the new, that, that we know definitively what the Apostle Paul wrote because the vast body of manuscripts. But what happened is that all of those copies people made of the original letters and writings of Peter, Paul, John, or whoever, um, they kind of got grouped together based upon uh, different places where churches might be. Some in Egypt, in Alexandria, some in Antioch of Syria. And so there arose two uh, streams of manuscripts. And the underlying manuscripts for the King James and modern Bible translations are from different manuscripts, manuscript families. But what I learned was this. What I learned was this. That those manuscript families, underneath the modern Bible translations and the King James, the New King James, that they agree 98% of the time. That in places where there's any kind of major doctrine that's actually taught, they agree 99.9% of the time. I said, wait a minute, here I am, I don't even read Greek. And you're telling me there's really absolutely no difference. But there could be a problem. There could be a problem with the translation into English. Maybe somebody tinkered with the words a little bit, right? Maybe it got filtered through some man who had an agenda, and so when they translate the NIV or the ESV or, or whatever, they put their spin on things. 
Now, there are different translational philosophies, and I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about the translational philosophy behind the Bible that I'm reading from this evening. But I began to realize that the way language works is that you can use different words to mean the same thing. And remember, they taught us about synonyms in school. Y'all remember that, right? And so if the King James, for instance, uses the word concupiscence, you're not damaging the Word of God at all to translate that word as lust. Because that's what it means. And it's a whole lot easier to spell, too. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. I'm going to tell you, this is exactly what happens. That word concupiscence is like 85 letters long. Right? And so... You translate that in a modern translation to the word lust, which is four letters long, and they'll say, see, here's a change that's seven or eight letters long. And then you do that across the whole Bible, and you've got thousands of changes, right? And so it looks like you've made all these incredible changes to the Word of God, and you haven't. You've just translated a word faithfully into language that we actually know what the word means. And this is when my convictions as a pastor started to change several years ago. And it really came down to two things. It came down to two things. First... I began to realize that Christians in church were not reading the Bible. They were not reading their Bibles. Second, I realized that people outside of the church did not understand the Bible. And I came to understand that for people who were not raised around the King James, who did not absorb all of that Elizabethan English the way I did, being preached to all those years as a kid... It was a foreign language to them. And the Lord began to work upon my heart, and He began to show me that as cultural Christianity declined, that there were going to be generations of people, my age, maybe a little older, but especially younger, who are going to grow up without any kind of connection to the King James Bible. And in some ways, it would be an unnecessary barrier to them understanding the Word of God. And so the Lord convicted me about that. And he began to remind me that we need a Bible that churched people, people in church, that they can trust and will read. And we need a Bible that people who have no background in church can pick up and understand immediately. We need a Bible tonight, folks, that a kid in the village can read and understand as soon as he picks it up. Provided he's old enough to read, right? Otherwise, we'll give him some coloring pictures and crayons and we'll help him along. We need a Bible that a kid in a trailer park can pick up and read I'm going to tell you something. I learned this teaching a college and career Sunday school class. Take the Bible out of it. People today, the kids today, they just can't read. I mean, they can't read. And so you say, now read this Bible that sounds like Shakespeare. And you find out what happens. God gave us his word so that it would be understood. And God gave us his word that it would be known. You see that here in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. So people will ask me all the time, what's the best Bible translation to use? So I'm going to give you a definitive answer. The best Bible translation for you is the one you will read. The best Bible translation for you is the one you will read. If you read and you use and you love the King James, then you read it and you love it and you use it and you memorize it and you study and you master it and you know it. But even if it's something else, then... Read it and study it and love it and know it and memorize it. But understand me, even if tonight you were raised like I was, and I understand completely where you're coming from to believe that the King James is the only valid translation of the Bible, hear me tonight, a closed King James Bible will never help anybody. It will never help anybody. It has to be opened and read and understood. 
one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived. I think the most important English-speaking Christian that's ever lived was a man by the name of William Tyndall. And William Tyndall was a man who was passionate about the gospel, but his real driving passion was one thing, and that was translating a Bible into English that English-speaking Christians could understand. And he was able to do that and produced most of his Bible and published his New Testament in the year 1526. And William Tyndall was very faithful in his translation of the New Testament, and he took aim at the Catholic Church at that time. He had the guts to translate the word church, not as church, but as the word congregation. And he did that because the Greek word, uh, ecclesia, means an assembly. But the Catholics, they needed their church buildings. And so in their Bibles, they used the English word church. It comes from the German word kirche for a building. Ultimately, William Tyndall's faithfulness, it cost him his life. He was burned at the stake during the reign of Henry VIII before Henry VIII converted to Protestantism just so he could get a divorce. But his last words, William Tyndall's last words, when he was burned at the stake were this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Wanted a Bible in English that people could understand. And his Bible that he translated is so... Here's how impactful William Tyndall is. William Tyndall is so impactful that if you have a King James Bible tonight, 84% of the words in the King James are directly out of William Tyndall's New Testament. It's it's an amazing man that God used greatly. But my favorite scene from William Tyndall's life is a scene where he said this quote right here, where he was talking to a Catholic bishop who did not believe that English-speaking people needed a Bible. The church had a Bible in Latin, and if you wanted to read the Bible, then you should get ordained as a priest, and you should learn Latin, and they'll explain to you what it means. But here's what he said. He said, I defy the Pope and his laws. Amen, first of all. Then he said, if God spares my life, in a few years a plowboy shall know more of the Scriptures than you do. That's awesome, isn't it? He said to that educated bishop, he said, if God uses me the way I hope he does, I will make it so that that uneducated blue-collar kid knows more of the Word of God than you. And I believe that's God's heart. I really believe that God's heart is to be understood. So what's the best Bible? The one you use. The one you read. I love the King James Bible. I do, and I'm going to be honest with you. I miss the King James Bible. I miss the excellency of the language. Uh, But as a preacher who declares the Word of God, I have a responsibility to the people who aren't here yet. I have a responsibility to the plowboy to preach to him in language he can understand. And even though I do use the ESV, and I I like the ESV, uh, I I would have no trouble at all telling you that any modern translation that you use, uh, with very, very few exceptions, you can see me and I'll tell you which ones, they are the perfect Word of God. If Peter or John or Paul were here tonight and they could actually read English, They would read them in any of them and they would say, that's exactly what I wrote. That's exactly what I said. And so when we talk about the Word of God being inspired, when we talk about the Word of God being inerrant, when we talk about the Word of God being perfect, we are saying that is present in these English translations just as it was when those men took a quill and dipped it into an inkwell and began to write. So why the ESV? If we want a Bible that's faithful and we want a Bible that's understandable, when there are like five trillion Bible translations available in English, why this one? Why not, you know, the NIV or or the New King James? Why not, you know, the Lego Action Bible or whatever? Why the ESV? Well, let me explain to you in a couple ways. But first, let me uh, take you back to the history of the English Bible. Here's uh, how it is I came to have an ESV tonight. The first true English Bible was not the King James Bible. I've already told you about William Tyndall. So don't think, as I've heard people actually say, that you know King James just sat down and wrote the Bible. 
That's insanity. That is absolutely not what happened. King James had very little to do, actually, with the translation of the Bible. He commissioned it, and since he was the king, you know, they dedicated it to him because, hey, it's good to be king, and you want to keep him on your good side. The first English Bible translation dated all the way back to 1409. And it was translated by a man by the name of John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe's Bible translation, important though it was, had a couple of things working against it. One of them is that it was translated in 1409. And that means that it was translated before some of the great changes that happened to the English language. It was really translated in Middle English before we have the development of modern English. And even though it is an English Bible, none of us can really read it. It's almost completely different language. And since it was translated in 1409, it was translated before uh, the invention of the printing press. So it wasn't really easy to distribute. It was a whole lot of work to get those copies out. And uh, not only that, but um, Wycliffe's translation was not translated from Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. It was translated from Latin. Jerome uh, had translated thousands of years earlier. He had translated uh, the New Testament into Latin, and that was the official Bible of Christianity, really the only one for about a thousand years. And that's all Wycliffe had, so that's what he translated from. But during the Protestant Reformation, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, there's a great movement, um, really, of humanism that said, we need to go back to the original sources. And so they wanted to go back to the Greek translation, the actual original language that the Bible writers used. And so William Tyndall, Tyndall began to work from Greek. He was greatly influenced and spent some time with Martin Luther, engaging with his German translation of the Bible, written in the vernacular of the people. And when Tyndall's publication became available, it was so widely popular that the Church of England had a problem. And the Church in England had the problem that, man, all of a sudden English people can read the Bible. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do with all these English-speaking people start to read the Word of God? So they said, we have no choice but to develop our own church-sanctioned English Bible. And they produced what was known as the Great Bible, the first officially endorsed legal English translation. And eventually, in 1599, some English refugees who were living in Geneva produced the insanely successful Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was incredibly popular with English-speaking Christians. In fact, when the Puritans came to America, I want to say that was 1620, but I'm tired, so you can check my math. Even though the King James Bible had already been published, they carried the Geneva Bible with them. And somebody can Google this really quick and get us an answer, but I believe when George Washington was inaugurated to be president of the United States, he had his hand not on a King James Bible, but on a Geneva Bible. I have one of those in my office if you'd like to see one. But that was wildly popular. So here you've got the official church Bible and you've got the Geneva Bible that everybody's using. And it was kind of produced really as a study Bible with commentary and notes in it so that people could really understand the Word of God. And so the Church of England came back and produced the Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible had this problem. It was really influenced by Tyndall. It would be very similar to a King James Bible. The problem was they never produced them in like a, a format that you could carry. It was just a Bible that was put on the pulpit, locked in the church. So that don't do you any good, does it? But finally, they produced the King James Bible, published, of course, in 1611. And the King James Bible was revised a number of times so that the Bible, if you're carrying a King James Bible, you're not carrying a 1611 King James Bible. You are carrying a 1789 King James Bible where spelling changes have been updated and language has been updated and all that kind of thing. But of course, the English language continued to move on. And so eventually in the early or the late 19th century, uh, you end up with the revised version. But you know that American English is different than English English. And Alabama English is way different from all that. 
But there was an English translation for Americans produced from the Revised Version called the American Revised Version. Then you have the Revised Standard Version. And in 19, the 1990s, uh, the publishing company Crossway purchased the rights to the Revised Standard Version, which they would use as the basis for the English Standard Version. And their desire was for a word-for-word translation, an essentially literal translation of the Word of God. And this is where translational styles are important to understand because when people sit down to translate the Bible from the donor languages into the receptor languages, they have to make some choices. Do we want to literally translate the very words, even though it may make it kind of hard in English? Or do we want to get down to what the writers meant? Do we want to give you what the writers said? Or do we want to give you what the writers meant? Here's an example of this. I think we've got 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 10. This is in the ESV. David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. That is a literal translation of the Hebrew underneath that verse. But that phrase, David slept with his fathers, that's an idiomatic expression. Does that mean that David went to bed with all of his daddies? No. It means David died, right? So when you're translating this, what do you put in there? Do you put David slept with his fathers? Or do you put David died? What do you put? Either one really is going to be faithful, but you have to make that decision. And in the ESV, what they said is this. The Hebrew says, David slept with his fathers. So what we're going to say is, David slept with his fathers. The ESV chooses that word-for-word translation. So when you read the ESV, you are reading the actual words of the original text in English. It's not necessarily Alabama English, but it'll work. You, you translate that one, and uh, then you'll have something. The ESV was designed to be translated as literally as possible into understandable English. Now, I want to give you just some quotes of some people who worked on translating this, just so you could get a glimpse of their motivation and their heart. The first is from J.I. Packer. said, The translation of Scripture should be as close to the original in wording and sentence structure as is compatible with the flow and force of English. Vern Poitras, we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Amen. That is that God did not just inspire vaguely the thoughts of the human writers, but that every word that we have in the original text is what he selected as part of the total communication. Wayne Grudem, quote, We have a responsibility to the reader, but more than that, a responsibility to God that we faithfully render every bit of meaning that is there in the original text into English insofar as we are able to do so. That's a level of commitment to the integrity of Scripture and the authority of God that I want when I read the Bible. I want to know that I'm reading the words of God, not somebody's interpretations of the words of God. Interpretation is important. It's important. It's a lot of what I do when I preach to you. But you need to know the difference between when you're hearing me and when you're hearing the Word of God. And you need to know that when you're reading the Word of God. That translation always comes before interpretation. And sometimes that can get a little bit murky. And I want to give you an example of this. We should have Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1 and 2 uh, in three different translations. The Christian Standard Bible. Now, a lot of our Sunday school materials in the CSB, the ESV, and then the King James. We'll get the King James in a minute. The CSB says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. The ESV says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the CSB, that phrase, brothers and sisters, that's the difference I want to look at. Brothers in the ESV, brethren in the King James, brothers and sisters in the CSB. I heard directly, directly in a meeting one time with one of the translation 
uh, people from Lifeway who helped produce the CSB. I heard them directly say that the reason they went with the phrase brothers and sisters is to be more inclusive. Literally, heard them say that. But the Greek under that says brothers. Now, I know, I know that when the Bible uses that language when it talks about brothers, it's talking about the church. And I know that brethren means sistren, right? I know you got brothers and sisters here. I get that. And y'all are all the brothers, right? And you're the brothers and sisters. I get that. I don't think that's nefarious. I don't think that that's evil. I don't think they're distorting the Word of God at all. But I still don't think it's best. Why? Because it's not what they wrote. What Paul wrote is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brethren. There's another example of that, comparing the ESV to the King James. Romans 12.1, King James, I beseech you therefore, second quote this one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do you notice how there's a translation, uh, CSB and ESV use the word worship, and King James uses the, word, uh, uses the word service. The Greek word underneath that means worship. It means worship. And so service is accurate. We talk about a worship service, and that's the idea. But the word worship, I think, gets the full meaning. What Paul really is saying in that verse, by the way, is that your life is a worship service. That's what he's saying, is that your life is a living liturgy of what you give glory to. So I love the ESV for its balance between readability, reliability, and theological precision. We need a Bible that is understandable both to Christians and non-Christians, but we need a Bible that is Christian, Say, what in the world do you mean? Let me show you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. I think we've got that. There you go. Again, the CSB and the ESV. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. Uh, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the ESV, you'll notice, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justify means to declare righteous. So the CSB is an accurate and a faithful translation. Absolutely. But when you go that route, you lose a vital word in your Christian vocabulary. You, use, you lose the word justification. Friends, we need, we need our Christian language. We need a Bible that has those words in it. And one of the reasons I love the ESV and I don't know if this will make any sense to anybody else. I hope it does to you. I like the ESV because it sounds like the Bible. I, I benefit from other Bible translations, the NIV. I, I read that and, and study from that some. But my ears have been trained to the King James. The King James sounds like Bible, doesn't it? And sometimes you read another Bible translation and you think, man, what, what am I reading? The ESV to me sounds like Bible. So I commend it to you. It's what I preach from. But again, read the Bible. Whatever translation it is, except the message. That's not a translation. Whatever translation it is, trust it. Risk your life on it. Open it, know it, and let God show you wonderful things. Now, I want to finish up tonight. Uh, if they've got available. Do you all have that video I sent? No, not the announcements. But look. You feel free to talk amongst yourself. Man, maybe I didn't send it. Well, I meant to send it. I will put it on our Facebook and try and email it out to y'all. Here's what I want to tell you tonight. We are blessed 
as English-speaking people. In that, we have one verse of Scripture we can understand. And we have Bible after Bible after Bible after translation after translation after translation. We have a glut of Bibles we can understand. And there are people all over this world in their languages and in their tribes where they're just now starting to receive portions of the Bible that they can read. And what I wanted to show you tonight was a video of a tribe in Papua New Guinea, I believe it was, where they received their Bibles for the very first time. And it would humble you to see those people celebrate, weep, that they could read the words of God. And that's what we have when we open the Bible. We have our God speaking to us in language that you can understand if you are eight or if you are 80. And you have today, as an English-speaking Christian living in the year 2020, you have more access to understand the truth of Scripture than any generation of Christians that has ever lived. That has ever lived. Take advantage of every bit of that that you can. Open the Word of God and read it. And let God do what David said He would do. Let Him revive your soul. Let Him give you wisdom. Let Him bring joy and rejoicing to your heart. Let Him produce fear of the Lord in you so that you could live a transformed life. Let me pray for you tonight. Um, My invitation is not so much an invitation uh, as it is, go read your Bible. That's it. Amen? But we're going to go tonight. We'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. God, You are so, so good to speak to poor, pitiful, sinful creatures like us. And then, Lord... In the simple goodness of your grace, Lord, we are here tonight as English-speaking people. Lord, at this point in history, who have so many options available to read the Word of God, and yet many of us probably don't read the Word of God as much as we should. We don't interact with it as faithfully as we ought to. God, we can only ask for your forgiveness. We can only ask for your forgiveness. David, in these words, says that your, your word is to be desired more than gold, and fine gold, more than honey. Lord, give us that appetite. Give us that appetite for your word, whatever translation it is. And use your word to do its work in us, we pray. Go with us now until we meet again. And we ask for all these graces today in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.